Well, good morning again. I feel like I need to introduce myself. I've been away for a couple of weeks. Um, on vacation, my wife and I celebrated an anniversary, and then we went camping with the church last week. I had a wonderful time up there, but I just feel like <clears throat> I've been away. I come in, and somebody tried to give me a welcome packet. Uh, so that's pretty sad. I would invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23. But I want to open with a word of prayer before we look at the text. So. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of worshiping together. I pray that as we open this word and unpack what you have stated, I pray that we would glean from these things, from this word, what you would have us to. Lord, help us to see the warnings where it is necessary. Help us to see the examples. Help us to see the encouragements. And then, Lord, help us to see the promises from your word. Lord, your word is is sufficient and is relevant to our life. And, Lord, I I pray that we would see that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a couple of things that have always intrigued me about the Christian life that I've found interesting. Maybe you'll find interesting. And I think you'll see the connection to this passage. First of all is God's expectation for the believer of how to how to treat the unbeliever. God expects us to treat the unbeliever with respect, even love. In fact, we're told to love our enemies, even our enemies, love our our enemies. Um, Even though a believer can live right beside an an unbeliever, they can be neighbors, there can be a, a big world of difference, a huge difference between the two. God has worked in the heart of the one, radically changing their life, completely different value systems, completely uh, different moral standards, uh, different guidelines of or principles that that govern their their life, govern uh, principles of wisdom that govern their life. Things that are completely unimportant to the believer are important to the unbeliever. Different entertainment system, different values, different priorities. Just a different way of life, different living. Um, there's a huge difference there. The, the unbeliever is essentially free to, uh, they're free from any kind of restraints that would inform their conscience, that would put restraints on them. They can just follow their own desires as much as they would like to do that. Uh, Follow their own focus of their own happiness 100% of the time. They have no desire to please God like the believer. The believer is driven to please God, not please himself, but please God. Now, that may seem fun or, or good at the time, just following our own desires, our own happiness... But at some point, we're going to pay the consequences of that. It's just a reality. Uh, we, the, the unbeliever has not experienced the, the grace of God. They do not have a relationship with the God of all comforts. They have no hope. They, they don't find rest for their souls like the believer does. And they do not know the, the God who 
is able to give them a peace that passes all understanding. They don't understand the conviction of the Holy Spirit convicting them of of sin, righteousness, and judgment, the the holiness of God and their own sinfulness, the standing before God in judgment day. They don't understand the gravity, the weight of that sin that has been then released and forgiven. And, And they just haven't experienced that. They haven't experienced the grace of God. And that's significant. It makes a, a huge difference, difference in a person's life. And we can understand then why God would say, love your enemies. Why Christ is the example and, and Christ's model was that he was full of grace and truth. That's what John tells us. John chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 17. That in his model with dealing with the unsaved, he was full of grace and truth. That's the way God approaches us. Grace and truth. That's the way we are to, the believer is to approach the unbeliever with grace and truth. Believing parents, believing parents are to approach unbelieving children with grace and truth. We're to be patient with them and be gracious with them. And the church is then to approach the world with grace and truth. That's the model. It's the model that we see throughout Scripture. It's always amazed me. Another thing that, that I think that is amazing in Scripture is the unity that we see in Scripture. I saw a chart the, the other day on, on Facebook, and somebody had taken the time, but there's 63,000 cross-references between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or within the Old Testament, or within the New Testament. 63,000 cross-references. There's a unity there within that Book, Even though there's 40 different authors, human authors of Scripture, uh, different personalities, different socioeconomic strata, different uh, cultures, even different languages, different goals and purposes for each book, different genres. <clears throat> it's written over the period of 1,400 years. But there's still a unity that, that is amazing to me. That it really is unmatched. And I think that you can narrow it down to three things. There's three things that I think unify the, the span of Scripture, from Genesis to, to Revelation. Uh, three subjects, you might say, that, that connect all 66 books of the Bible. These three things point to one thing, and that's one author. That God is the author of Scripture. One author. Number one, let me give you these three things. There's a unity there. It's the unity of the theme of Scripture. There's one theme in Scripture, and that's the redemption of man. From Genesis to Revelation, we see the the need of man to have a Savior, and then we see God provides that Savior. And God has communicated clearly the Gospels, faith in Him, man's need for redemption, and that redemption provided. And we see the theme is redemption. It's the grace of God. Number two, I think another thing that we see is that unifies Scripture is, is the theology that we see in Scripture. The, um, the consistent understanding of all the essential elements of man, of man, of God, of salvation. We see Satan, the angels, the Bible itself. And those provide, for the believer, those provide a framework of truth. It's it's truth. 
Again, it's it's unmatched. We see it from Genesis to Revelation. It's consistent within all 66 books. And it provides for the believer a reality that matches what we see. The reality that we see. It's It's a consistent theology. Unity in theology. Truth. And then another thing I think that pulls everything together is there's a a consistency in the holiness of the believer. Those who put their faith and trust in God live a certain life from Genesis to to Revelation. It's a pattern of of living, a a righteous and, and holy life. And it's consistent. It doesn't change because it's rooted and tied into the very nature and character of God, which doesn't change. We are to be holy as He is holy. That was the same in in Genesis, in the garden, and we see the same thing in the book of Revelation. Now, you say, well, boy, some of those guys in the Old Testament weren't very righteous. <clears throat> well, there was a progression of revelation. And we know a whole lot more about God's holiness and this righteous way to live in the New Testament than they ever did in the Old Testament. There's a shadow in the Old Testament. But we see that progression as God has given revelation. And it's a, it's a holiness. But even in the Old Testament, the, the direction of their life is to please God. It was, to, it was a, a righteousness, a holiness. And that model was perfectly seen in Christ. And as I said earlier, what John says about Christ is that he was full of grace and truth. He was the perfect model of holiness, and that holiness is displayed with grace and truth. We we deal with the unbeliever with grace and truth, and that's even part of the consistency of Scripture is grace and truth from Genesis to Revelation. Both are in there. Grace and truth. Now, the point of this passage is the death of of Sarah, they're, they're recording the death of Sarah. This is Abraham's wife in chapter 23, Genesis. And the children of Israel needed to, to know this. They need to know, they need to be aware of the details of her death and what happened and the significance of that. But they also need to be aware of the character of Abraham because his character shines forth. He is the, the, the senior patriarch for the Jewish people and they needed to to know these things and abraham we've been looking at his life as an example we see him put forth as an example of the new testament he's an example of faith and he lived in an ungodly time an ungodly world just as we do today and there is also the just the stark reality of the harshness of life we see that in abraham's just life sometimes is raw it's painful. It hurts. But we see Abraham living out a life of faith and a life of righteousness, even among a people that, that have no idea what's going on in Abraham's life, completely different kind of priorities. But he does so. He lives this life out with grace and truth. He's a wonderful example of that. And now Abraham is, is coming to the place... In his life, that he sees his life coming to a close. That, that God has used him. He's, he's moving toward that time of, of life. And we see even more grace come to come out in his character. Now, folks, 
if there's ever a day that we need to, to see this, it's today. Because I think we live in this kind of world. I think we live in an ungodly world. <clears throat> I think this world that we live in today is, is not going to tolerate Christianity much longer. And that's what it is. They're, they're tolerating us now. We've moved to that, to that line of thinking. It's, we're, just, we're tolerating these Christians. We don't like it, but we have to put up with them. That's kind of where we are today. And sometimes I think we need to see an example. See an example, like Abraham is an example, how to live in that kind of world. So often the world doesn't, doesn't recognize spiritual significance of what's going on around them, right in front of them. In fact, many times they're just oblivious. The world is oblivious to the grace of God, oblivious to spiritual things. And they will be until the Holy Spirit works in their life. And, and it forces us to ask the question, how do we live in that kind of world? How do we respond as believers? How do believers respond to a world that doesn't understand spiritual things? Com- completely different worlds kind of come clashing together. And we see what elevates throughout Scripture is is grace and truth. That's the short answer. <laughs> grace and truth. Now, the outline of this passage is pretty pretty easy to follow. It's just three little points there. Just you have the announcement of Abra- of the announcement of Sarah's death. Then you have the the bargaining for uh, the burial plot, a burial place, and then you, then we see the the last few verses, the significance of the place. Let's look at the the announcement of Sarah's death here but we we want to keep in mind what's going on here and the the reaction or the interaction of abraham with this ungodly world genesis chapter 1 verse 23 and sarah lived 127 years and these are the years of the life of sarah let me just stop there for a second that's a long time to live right this was closer to the ending of the flood. We don't know how many years after the flood that Abraham and Sarah lived. But we do know that before the flood, people were living a much longer life. I mean, Adam lived 900 years. I think it was uh, by the time Noah came along, he lived 600 years. Uh, long lives. After the flood, some say it was because of the canopy that was around the earth that blocked the UV rays, had collapsed, and now the sun's having its effect. Some now are saying some good Christian scientists, a lot of good reading out there. The, the DNA has, has shifted because of the, the sin. Some say that, um, that environmental elements obviously have a, have a play in it. But there's a decrease in the life expectancy or the... The average age decreases after the flood. And we see that uh, Sarah lives to be 127 years old. Now, that's actually the first time and the only time in Scripture that we see the, the age of, the, of a, a, a woman in Scripture. And kind of like an obituary, she kind of leaves behind Abraham. Abraham is 137 years old. Her son Isaac is 37 years old. I just keep those things in mind as we go through the book of Genesis, the age here. The place that she died is in verse 2, that Sarah died in Kareth Arba, that is 
Hebron in the land of Canaan. And that's where, that's where Abraham was. Remember, God had moved Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and weep for her. And Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a sojourner and a foreign resident. Now, that's an interesting term. A foreign resident. I've come and I, I live here, but I'm still an outsider. A foreign resident among you. Give me a possession for a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, Abraham wept because of Sarah's death. Now, Sarah was an important person in the Old Testament. She was important to God's plan for Israel. She was in that line that, that uh, it was Abraham and Sarah that were the chosen one to bring about the, the Jewish people. They were, she was important to that. But she was also important to the plan of redemption that God had. But folks, the reality is, is no matter how important or no matter how much faith a person has, no matter how good they are, no matter, no matter how godly they are, they're all going to face death. That's just a reality of life. <laughs> just, we, are, we are going to face death. The genealogies in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, many of them, at the end of it, it says, and he died. He lived this long and he died. Well, Sarah has died. Paul reminds us about the cause of that. It's, Paul says it's through sin, death reigns. The number one enemy of man is death. That's the, the biggest enemy that we face because that, that's... We're, we're going to face judgment at that moment. Now, we, uh, I, I uh, worked in a mine for about a year of my life. Did some surveying work underground. And we would be two miles underground, and there would be a conveyor belt uh, around that uh, spot that they were cutting the coal. That coal would be put on that conveyor belt. And it would take a long time, but eventually that coal would be outside because of that conveyor belt. Now, folks, we're all on a conveyor belt, and that conveyor belt ends at death. We will face death. And Abraham wept. He wept. This is a harsh reality of life. This is, life is, is not fair. It's because of sinfulness. And, and really, life is unbearable, folks. The re- reality of it is, is we're not made to live in a sinful world. And death is actually a, a, somewhat of a, a blessing to us. Death is, is harsh. So Abraham... He's facing the fact that his life is coming to an end. Now, even, even more important, that God had promised these things, and some of these things had not come to, uh, to be uh, in his life. And Sarah missed out on seeing some of these things, even. He was still living in a tent. He, he was promised land. He, he didn't have any land. He was wandering. He was a wanderer. And he had no place of, of permanence here. But the stabilizing factor in Abraham's life was what? 
was his faith in God. God's promise that someday, Abraham, this is all going to be yours. Someday, someday. This is a harsh reality of life. And, and, and he weeps over his wife's death. And, but rather, notice, rather than, take, than bearing his, his body, taking her back to his home place where they grew up, and burying her there, he buries her in, in the promised land where God wanted them to be buried. Now, why is that? Why, why was Abraham thinking like this? There's one verse in the New Testament that gives us some clarity on this. And that's in Hebrews chapter, you'll see it on the screen, Hebrews chapter um, 11. There's a passage that was read for us earlier. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. In fact, let me just start in verse 9. By faith he sojourned, that's Abraham, in the land of promise. This is promised to him, but he was a sojourner, just, just kind of a wanderer. As a foreigner in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. His sons had to do the same thing. They were wanderers. Fellow heirs of the same promise. So God had promised them these things. They promised him permanence in a land. But they just never saw that. Even in their lifetime, they, they, they just didn't see it. Verse 10 clarifies it. For, why? For he was looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Well, what's that talking about? Oh, not talking about a physical city. He's talking about the permanence of, of eternity, being with God in all eternity. Now, there is going to be a, a physical city that, that's important, but yet, right now, Abraham's life is a life of faith and, and dependence upon God, looking for that eternal permanence with God. With God. And that's the idea. It's important for us to connect some dots here. Abraham was a man of faith. He he was looking for a permanence in his life. And he knew that permanence was with God. And and someday God was going to establish that city. Let me show you one other passage. This is in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 Actually, this is a passage that you know very well. Let me let me show you um, some of the some of the thinking here. Ephesians chapter two. Let me begin actually in verse in verse seven, so that in the age to come he might show. This is God. He might show the surpassing riches of his grace. So God. He wants to demonstrate His grace, especially in in the future when we look back. His grace is going to be displayed. His grace is going to be uh, manifested to, to everyone. Everyone will be able to see it. The surpassing riches of His grace. How? In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourself, it is the gift of God. So it's through faith that that God shows His grace to us. He gives us that faith. That's the gracious part of it. God was so kind to be gracious and so kind and gracious to us that He gave us faith. Where did Abraham's faith come from? It was God. It, It started with grace. Now look how it ends. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourself, it is a gift from God. Not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. If it came from us, we would be boasting about it. Verse 10, he says, tells us why. For we are his workmanship. 
His workman. He works in our life, creating, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. So it starts with God's grace in our life. He gives us faith to believe in Him, trust in Him. That frees us up, actually, then being exposed and experiencing His grace, that frees us up to for good works, for more grace, for showing grace to other people. Now, we need to understand that principle in Abraham's life. That, that's what's going on. Abraham has been changed by the grace of God. He has faith in his life to trust in God. And that, gra- that faith produced a grace there. A grace that changed who Abraham was. That he became a gracious person. Now, I want you to think about that. An angry person is going to, when you push them, they're going to get angry. A selfish person is going to respond with selfishness. A suspicious person is going to be suspicious. A nice person is going to be nice. A scornful person or an evil person, scornful. Abraham was a man of faith. And that faith and that theology, that belief system in Abraham's life, that experience that God has uh, brought grace in his life was the foundation for Abraham's attitude. It was the foundation for Abraham's character, for who Abraham was. He was now a man of grace. He experienced God's grace. And if you poke Abraham, he's going to be gracious. He is a man of grace. That's a, a principle. Angry man, you poke him, is going to be angry. Selfish man, selfishness. Uh, stingy man, stingy. But you know what? A gracious person is going to be gracious. It's just going to be the reaction. Why? Because it's in there. Christ taught about this tree. Good tree is going to produce good fruit. Bad tree is going to produce bad fruit. A gracious tree is going to produce gracious fruit. The, the, the life of the believer is going to produce grace and it's going to, God has intended it for good works to produce grace in other people's lives to, to demonstrate His grace ultimately. Now that's the principle. God's grace in the believer's life becomes the foundation for the grace toward other people. Let me say that again. God's grace in the believer's life becomes the foundation for the grace toward other people. Now, folks, in this life, we lose. In this life, we're not going to win. This is a harsh, harsh life. We're not designed to be here. We're designed to be in heaven with our heavenly Father. We're not designed to, to, to face the realities of sinfulness. So we have to live by faith. This life is just a preparation for eternity. It is in our theology that, that we prepare for, for eternity. There's much more important things. This life just points us to God, the Creator. We put our faith and trust in God. It points us to heaven. It's much more important things. And, and Abraham had experienced God's grace. Therefore, he, he can go through the harshness of life of Sarah's death with grace. Now, that's the foundation. Know that. Understand that. 
foundation of Abraham's life was based upon his faith in God, which produces grace in his life. And that grace is just going to come out. Genesis to Revelation. The believer's life is going to be a gracious life. Now, look at the bargain. Bargaining for a burial site here. Here's, here's where we see that, that grace in Abraham's life. Verse 5. And the sons of Heth said to, uh, answered Abraham saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of burial sites. None of us will refuse his burial site for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed himself before the land, uh, people of the land, the sons of Heth. This is the, the dominant, probably the dominant family there. They were Hittites. We'll talk about that in a second. And he spoke to them saying, If it is your desire for me to bury my dead out of your sight, hear me and meet with Ephron. Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me... Now, he's not talking about, I just want it for free. No, he wants to sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him, which is in the end of the field for the full price... Let me let him give it to me in your presence as a possession for a burial site. Now, Ephron was seated among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered. Now, let me kind of explain here. Abraham needs a burial site. To do that, he has to go to the city gates. That's where all of the, the wise men who make decisions for the city, they're going to be seated there. They're, they're going to be judges they're establishing laws for that city. Uh, they would probably receive the, the taxes for that city at that point. And so to, to buy and sell, you'd probably have to go to this point, the city gate, where, where it was a, a public place. Everybody could come and, and listen in and what's going on there. So this is, that's the environment. And Ephron was seated among them. That implies that he was one of the important people. He was probably a judge or, or maybe uh, a wealthy landowner that was there. So he was probably already wealthy himself. And he was seated there. And he's, he answers Abraham in his hearing. So Abraham goes and approaches the city council, if you will, and says, Hey, could you approach Heth uh, or Ephron and, uh, and let me get the burial plot? It says, Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of Heth, the sons of Heth, even all who went in at the gates of the city saying. So anybody that was coming and going could hear this. It was a very public statement, a very public uh, interchange here. Verse 11. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give... You the cave that is in it, in the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please hear me, I will give the silver for the land, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. 
And Ephron answered Abraham, saying, My Lord, hear me, a piece of land worth forty or four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. And Abraham heard Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So you see, beginning to see what's going on. It kind of reads like a, a deed that we would have today. The name of the seller, the name of the buyer, specific details of, about the, the land, its parameters. We'll see later on. We'll see the country and the region that it was in. We see the witnesses, the sons of, of Heth there, the, the Hittites. And now the Hittites were from the northern part of uh, the Mesopotamian region, uh, they actually would come down, they would be what we would consider modern-day Turkey. They had migrated into this area in the land of Canaan. And so they were, they were witnesses. They, had, they lived there. They were, um, and then we see the purchase price, 400 shekels of silver. Uh, we see the fact that it was paid in public. So there was a, a very public thing. Everybody could see what was going on here. And the form of payment was silver. The purpose was for a burial plot for his wife. Abraham was elevating his wife. This was an important person. Not just to Abraham, but an important person in historic or human history. And all of these details they, they, that, that are given here are for the purpose so that it can never be disputed. This was going to be Abraham's land. This was a, a land transfer from Ephron to Abraham. And this would last to Abraham's grandson, which had been Jacob. Another thing that we need to note here, notice how, how important Abraham is here in this section. He was, he was powerful. They, they called him the prince among us. Uh, a godly prince, or the uh, prince of God is literally what it says. He was, he was wealthy, he had size, he had uh, multiple cattle, he was powerful, he had wealth, he had ethos, a favor among the people. They, they could see God's hand of blessing was on this guy. And we see he was, he was powerful. And, in fact, all of them were probably saying, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll sell you my land. Uh, you, you, and, and that's what was stated there. We will, we will, any of us will be glad to sell you our land. But there's one little catch, right? The third thing that we need to notice is how much. And it's 400 shekels of silver. Now, Joseph was sold as a slave for 30 pieces of silver. Now, it wouldn't have been coins. It would have been stamped with a face on it like that. But it would have been weighted out 30 little shekels or 400 little shekels. That would have been a half of an ounce of silver at that time. 400. A slave would have been sold at 30 30 pieces. Another piece of land in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. He buys some land for 19, I believe it was 19 pieces or 17 pieces of, of silver. This is 400. They look at this man and they say, ah. They don't, they don't say, here's a fair market price. 
They, they see, how much can we get out of this guy? How, how much can we... He's wealthy. He can afford this. We're, we're going we're gonna to extract from him as much as we can. We would say fair market value. It's kind of an exorbitant amount. It's kind of like what, what the, you know, if the, if the government is involved, the, the prices goes up automatically. I don't know why that is. But that's what's going on here. They, they raise the price because he could pay it. They look at the buyer and, and, it's, and it's not fair, but they say, hey, yeah, here's the price. And they say, so he sets a price, an exorbitant amount of money. Now, what's going on? Well, these people didn't know Abraham, did they? They didn't know the, the spiritual significance. They didn't know the spiritual reality. They didn't know that, that Abraham was called by the true and living God from the Ur of the Chaldees to sojourn among them. They didn't know that Abraham was the example of faith, the model of faith for the rest of us. They didn't know that, that God was going to take Abraham and make him a great nation. That God was actually going to give all of this land to Abraham. It was going to be his anyway. And that at this site, that God was going to establish a great nation, a mighty nation. And that through that nation, there's going to be the Redeemer for the world. Through that nation, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And, and that through Sarah, the one that they're burying here, that she was chosen by God and she was the mother of the next patriarch. And that through this nation, God was going to give, communicate His Word to mankind. And that through this nation, the needed Messiah was going to come. They didn't, they didn't know all that. They, they weren't aware. And maybe they had heard some stories. Maybe they had heard a little bit about His faith. A little bit here and there, but really they, they probably had no clue. They had no clue that 4,000 years later we're talking about these same people. They had no clue of the significance of that day. That, that, that was one of the first steps of the redemption of mankind. All of their focus was on one thing, and that's what? Money. Money. They're on the outside looking in. They don't, they don't understand the, the significance of what's going on. They're, they're completely oblivious to those things. They have completely different mindset or, or a different lens on. And, and they're probably walking away from this. The only thing they're seeing is 400 shekels of silver. Wow! He, he got them this time. Man. And probably going out bragging how much they got, exorbitant price, maybe calling Abraham a sucker for falling for this, um, taking advantage of him. And that's an obvious thing here. Now, maybe there was taxes on that land. We don't know a whole lot, but 400 shekels of silver is an exorbitant price. But this is a picture of, a perfect picture, a wonderful picture of strength under control. They, they admitted himself, themselves that he was a powerful man among us. He, he is a prince among us. And, and we see Abraham could have just taken that by force. There's no doubt about that. He had his own army at one point. What we see here is humility. And we see here is meekness. And I'm just reminded of Matthew chapter 5. 
Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, where, where Christ said this. He said, Blessed are the lowly or the meek, for they shall inherit the what? <laughs> the earth. He, Abraham wasn't concerned about the price. He would pay any, any price. His focus was on, on something else, on a higher calling. Why tell us that the meek shall inherit the earth? Why? Because that gives us confidence, folks. Abraham conf- had confidence. He, he, he knew what was really important. Now, there's a principle here, I think, that we need to know. We need to settle in our mind that we're going to be wronged on this earth. You just need to know it. People are going to hate you. They're going to do you wrong. They're going to lie to you. They're going to uh, under cut you, undermine you, talk behind your back, you're going to be wrong. But there are some things that are more important. And that's what's going on here. And this is just an act of grace on Abraham's part. He could have, he could have just taken probably that whole region. He had the money, he probably had the, the manpower to do so. But yet he was, he was gracious. He pulled back. There was strength under control. There was humility. There was meekness here. To Abraham, faith trumped sight. Faith was more important than than sight. (laughs) The spiritual world trumped the physical world in Abraham's mind. The eternal, it, it, it was more important than the here and now in Abraham's mind. Folks, that's the way we need to live. That, that's the Christian life. That kind of thinking frees us up to be able to be gracious. Because you know what? It's all going to be ours eventually anyway. We, we inherit the earth. So we can be gracious. We can be giving. We can be so rewarding, if you will, to it. A, a world that looks at us and they say, sucker. They say, you're so vulnerable. You're so gullible, so naive, and, and we're, just, we're just gracious. We're going to be taken advantage of, folks. We just need to get that in our mind, get that in our head. Now, I'm not saying that we just you know, lay over and play dead or anything like that, but we there's a place for being gracious. The place for being gracious. Let me move on. Number three, look at the significance of this place. We go back to verse 17. So Ephraim's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre. Now Mamre was where Abraham originally lived when he came down and uh, lived in Canaan. Remember, that's where God uh, visited Abraham around the oaks of Mamre. That's where he had first pitched his tent. He lived there. God made him wealthy from that point. And it, the grave faced that, that place where Abraham was. It says the field and the cave that was in it and all of the trees which were in the field that were in within it uh, with all, within the confines of the borders were deeded over to Abraham as a purchase in the sight of the sons of Heth. They were the witnesses before all who came in at the, the gates of the city. So anybody else that was there coming and going, they could have witnessed this as well. And after this, Abraham buried, his, buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, 
facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham. Several times stating the same thing over and over again. That this is Abraham's property. This is, belongs to Abraham. The possession of the burial site by the sons of Heth. And what's, what's he saying here? That this is God's place. This is exactly where God wants Abraham. He is a, a sojourner. He doesn't even have land. He has to buy land to, to uh, bury his, his wife. But this is exactly where God wanted him. This is the promised land. This is the place where Abraham, uh, God moved Abraham from the Earl of the Chaldeas to, to this particular place. This is going to be the place where his family would come back to time and time again. Man can negotiate. And that's what Abraham had to do. Negotiate the property. But you know what? All of that was in, within the control of God. Even that grace was in, within the control of, of God. Because this is God's place. This is exactly where God wanted them to be. And this grave became, this cave became the, 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 the cemetery, if you will, of Abraham's family. If you look at the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, we see this is pretty clear, verse 29, chapter 49, verse 29, that he commanded, now this is Jacob, this is Abraham's grandson, he commanded them saying, I am about to gather to my people, I'm about to die, he says, bury me with my father in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, specific, exactly, exactly. Now, where was they? Where were they? They were in Egypt. So what they had to do, they had to carry his bones and bury them in this particular place because he did not want to be buried in Egypt. It says in the cave, the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, the land of Canaan. It says they buried him uh, there they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. They buried Leah. In fact, it became a family cemetery. Now, Israel needed to know that. They needed to know this is God's place. There, there was no other place that they could settle. No other place that God had for them. But this place, they had to conquer the land of Canaan. And they were going to do it with force, because this is where God says that they are to be. Now, for us, we, we look at this. We've seen negotiations were made. Abraham was gracious. But we, we also see the sovereign hand of God saying, you know what, this is exactly right. Now, for us, this is apply this, this is the principle. We trust God, trust in God's sovereignty. That God's sovereignty can overcome any of the violations of man, anything that man does to us can be overcome by, by God. It's amazing. I think last week Paige touched on that. Joseph. Joseph, he said to his brothers, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for, for good. That's just grace. And that's what we see in Abraham's life. They take advantage of him because he's a wealthy, land, a wealthy man. And he... He just says, okay, I'm willing to pay that. And the world sees us as 
as weak and vulnerable. They, they like force. And, and we are called to be gracious. We live by grace and truth. But you know what? We also serve a sovereign God who can correct all of that stuff. And ultimately, like I said, we're going to inherit all of this stuff anyway. It's all ours. And we can go forth with confidence. Again, we don't roll over dead, but you know what? God has called us to graciousness. A life of graciousness. Even though people may take advantage of you, you know what? We're not victims. We're we're those who live by grace. So often the world is oblivious to the spiritual reality of what God is doing on this world. They are oblivious to the grace of God. They don't see it. They overlook it. But the reality is, is there, it's full of grace. Full of grace. And we're, we're part of that. Until the Holy Spirit works in their heart, they're never going to really see that. When we live in this world, it's a harsh world. Death is going to happen. But you know what? We're called to be gracious. I love, let me close with this one quote here. This is from John Newton. I may have spoken this before, said this before, but here's what he says. I love this. He says, when you look at the, um, when we look at the ungodly, we are not called to hate them, but to pity them, to mourn over them, to pray for them. Nor have we any right to boast over them, for by nature and of ourselves, so our own nature and of ourselves, we are no better than they. We look at Abraham and we think, man, he is better than anybody on that, at that gate at that time. And you know what? Abraham in his meekness, in his humility, I am no better than anyone else. Other than the grace of God, folks. Other than the grace of God, we are nothing. We're no better than anybody else. And we have a responsibility to be gracious to other people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for these thoughts, these words. Thank you for the example of Abraham. What a wonderful thing to see. Just just to actually see a, a man of God being taken advantage of, but yet responding with such grace. Lord, we, we know that Christ was done the same way. We know that, that Christ came down, He was taken advantage of, misunderstood, lied about, and, and yet He was so gracious. That Lord, may we have that same model in our own mind. May we just be gracious people. Knowing, knowing that if it wasn't for You working in our life, we would be no different, no better off. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.